We are going to be in Ruth chapter 1 as we are in uh, the second week of our series through uh, this book of Ruth. Last week was the 30,000 foot flyover. We examined uh, what the book was all about, uh, potentially who wrote it, the cultural context of, of where Ruth falls in. We saw that Ruth kind of sticks out like a sore thumb uh, in this portion of scripture. We, we're reading through uh, Joshua and Judges. We're reading these historical books. Then we get to this little like love story, this narrative that seems out of place, but when we're zoomed in, focusing on just that, yes, it seems out of place, but when we zoom out and we see the full picture, we see that the book of Ruth really is uh, typifying the, the greatest story, the story of redemption, the story of Messiah and his work that he does as the kinsman redeemer, not only of Israel, but of the Gentiles as well, and how the book of Ruth really foreshadows what Jesus was going to do. And so we are going to keep that in focus that Ruth really is a book of redemption, and Ruth really is the key to understanding the Messiah's work in our life, in the life of history, uh, and, and really how we move forward as followers of Christ, knowing the redemption that we have through the Messiah. And so that's where we're going to start as we dive into this wonderful book. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, first and foremost, if you're taking notes, uh, the title of this morning's message is In the Land of Moab, Love's Response. Uh, we're going to be looking at some responses to situations. Uh, we are hopefully going to be encouraged uh, by how people in this narrative respond to hardships. Uh, there's different ways of responding. All of them are ways we can learn and glean from. Um, and so prepare yourselves for that. And the reason I say prepare yourselves for that, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to read the entire chapter uh, word for word. I'm not going to make you stand and follow along with me on the screen. That would be fun. Maybe we'll work up to that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, if you don't have your Bibles and you have a smartphone, pull them out, open your Bible app, go to Ruth chapter 1. And if you're still not having either of those, we've got it up on the screens for you. Following along, Ruth chapter 1, this is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled there, uh, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Shelon, and they were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her sons. And these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there in Moab about ten years. And both Malon and Shelon died. And the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Mo uh, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields uh, of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have uh, dealt with the dead uh, and with me. The Lord grant you uh, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband." Then she kissed them 
And she lifted up their voices and wept. And she said to them, no one will return to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have no sons in my womb that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they had grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for my sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people and back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them, they went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, returned with her from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvests. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we thank you that your word cuts through the bone and the marrow to the soul and to the spirit and reveals to us the motives and the intents of our heart. God, we pray that this morning you would meet us where we are at. God, that you by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writer of this book to pen down this story, God, we pray that the same Holy Spirit would reveal to us truth about ourselves. God, that no matter what situation we are in, we would see different ways to respond, Lord, and that we would respond well and that we would, be, we would respond rightly. God, we pray that we would be built up in our faith. God, as we study this great story, God, that we would be challenged. God, that we would be challenged to live our lives more for you and more like you. God, I pray that we would be inspired. God, as we look at the lives of these heroes of the faith, God, that we would truly be inspired by the boldness, uh, by the response uh, that they have. Lord, that we would not only be encouraged and inspired, but God, we pray that you would challenge us. Challenge our thinking. Challenge our status quo, the, the, the things that we have just gotten to the rhythms of. Lord, may you shake things up a little bit and reveal yourself to us in a deeper way. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and your son's wonderful and beautiful name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. We, we're introduced to a story, uh, and it's seemingly a happy story at first. Uh, there's a woman named Naomi. She has a husband named Elimelech, 
and they have two sons. This would be something that is exciting. But then famine hits the land. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Judges, Israel was kind of on this ebb and flow in their right relationship with God. At times they would be uh, very close to the Lord, and at other times they would be very far from the Lord. And the Lord would send different calamities their way to help redirect and point them back to him. And we find uh, Israel at this time, as they are in the land, uh, they are facing famine. Uh, and so Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, uh, they hear that there is good land across the Jordan River, across the Dead Sea in the land of Moab. And so they travel uh, to the east. And in traveling to the east, they spend some time there in Moab. And the story tells us that uh, the two sons, Malon and Shilon, they meet some women, some Moabite women, uh, a woman named Orpah and a woman na uh, named Ruth, uh, and they get married. Uh, and then some things are going to occur. Um, Things are going to go quite sad, actually. There's, there's tragedy that hits the family. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi without a husband uh, and with her only hope to the inheritance of her family being in her two sons. But as the story would go, the tragedy doesn't stop there. And her two sons pass away and leave her a widow and leave her daughters-in-law widows as well. And with no real hope of carrying on the family name. So before we dive into this narrative a little bit more, first I want to help us set the stage and understand a little bit about Moab. As Moab is an important historical uh, kingdom, uh, it, it has a culture that really bleeds throughout the Bible as Israel comes into contact with the Moabites time and time again. And so what we're going to do for the next couple moments is we're going to examine Moab because truly understanding Moab and the Moabites are going to really set the stage for the later events of this book and really set some stage for later events for the children of Israel and even prophetically for some things that are going to happen in the future for the church. But first off, the land of Moab, it's named after somebody. Uh, it's named after, anyone want to take a guess? A guy by the name of Moab. Yeah, the book of Genesis, I mean, back in the day they were pretty, uh, we do it too, like Washington, named after. Washington. Okay, yeah. Uh, Moab is named after Moab. Uh, Moab is the son, catch this, of Lot, Abraham's nephew, of Lot and of Lot's wife, or, or, or wife, his daughter. Uh, Lot's wife had died. Remember, she turned into a pillar of salt when they were fleeing Sodom. Uh, and then Lot's two daughters, really sordid story, really weird. Um, they said, hey, it's the end of the world. Uh, there's no hope for the human race. We just watched fire and brimstone fall. We might be all that's left. We want to continue the human race. Uh, we've got our dad here. Um, we know how biology works, and some really weird things occur. Um, some sinful things occur. Uh, and as a result, uh, Moab is born. There's some curses that follow and all those kind of things. And then Moab goes off uh, and starts the people of the Moabites. Uh, the story uh, progresses a little bit. The Moabites grow in number uh, in the Transjordan region, which is a region around the Jordan River and the Dead Sea east of what is Israel in modern-day Jordan. Uh, the Moabites worship a Canaanite deity known as Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh is an interesting uh, deity in the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, he, he may be related to some Assyrian or Akkadian deities, uh, and there are some that even relate him 
to a more ancient culture than Assyria and Acadia, a, a, a region known as Ebla that existed in that region. But what is known about Chemosh is that he was a god who, according to them, would grant you uh, glorious um, victories in battle. Uh, he was almost kind of like a, a, a genie of sorts where if you would do things for him, he would do things for you and they would be favorable. Um, the, the cult of Chemosh that existed before Israel got there existed during the time Israel was there. And continued on into Babylonian captivity uh, was all about human sacrifice, uh, was all about animal sacrifice and self-mutilation and all sorts of weird things. Those who followed Shamash, uh, it, it was a pretty violent religion. Uh, so much so that we know from Moabite sources uh, that actually um, uh, agree with Scripture in that there are some historical events that the Bible lays out in 2 Kings uh, that we have found archaeologically uh, Moabite sources saying the same thing. So that's a cool little apologetics note uh, that we'll go into at some later time. Um, but it is said of one of the greatest kings of the Moabites, a guy by the name of Mesha, uh, he is said to have sacrificed his two sons to Chemosh right before battle with Israel. Uh, and you can read about this battle in 2 Kings chapter 13. It's intense. Uh, but Mesha uh, is defeated. Uh, Chemosh didn't come through uh, because Chemosh is not Yahweh. Uh, and Chemosh is false. Um, but this is who the Moabites worshipped. Uh, we see the Moabites come into the story, the biblical narrative, again, during the time of the Exodus. Uh, if you've read the book of Numbers, you might be familiar with the story of Balaam uh, and Balaam's talking donkey. Anyone familiar with that story? Yeah, so Balaam, Balaam is a prophet. He's a Moabite prophet, but he's a prophet of the one true God. So he's not a prophet of Chemosh. He's a prophet of Yahweh, but he gets hired by a king, a king named Balak, to go curse Israel. And so Balaam is like, okay, no, I'm not going to curse them. They're the people of my God. And then Balak says, I got a lot of money. And Balaam says, say what? He says, yeah, I got a lot of money. And Balaam's like, all right, I'm going to go curse him. And so Balaam goes, he gets on his donkey. He's making the way to where the Israelites are camped out. The donkey sees an angel. The donkey like really tries to, to mess Balaam up. Balaam starts beating the donkey because he's frustrated. Uh, the donkey talks back to him. Balaam's like scared out of his mind. Uh, God's giving him an opportunity to turn from his uh, bad plan. But Balaam's like, nah, bro, Balak has money. Uh, and so he continues on and he goes and, and if you read in Numbers chapter 22, he stands on the hills of Moab overlooking the plains where Israel is. And there are really cool things in there that we could dive into, but we're not going to this morning. But he stands up and he opens his mouth to curse Israel. And all that can come out of his mouth is blessing, which... He's not getting paid to bless. He's getting paid to curse, which is unfortunate for him. Um, so he goes back, tries again, blesses them. Goes back, tries again, prophesies that Messiah is going to come. Like he is really not coming through with his contract here. He goes and he meets with Balak after the third time. He's like, yo, Balak, um, I mean, I signed. I can still make Israel mess up. I can get them to curse themselves. Balak's like, how are you going to do that? And Balaam says, you know those Moabite women? They're like, kind of cute. I bet we can use them to seduce the Israelite men into fornication, adultery, and all these kind of things. And then they will incur the curse of Yahweh on themselves. 
And Balak says, okay, sounds good. You still get paid. They go to the Moabites. They get in league with the Moabites and the Midianites, which is another tribe, a federation from that area. And they seduce Israel, not only into adultery, fornication, but into idolatry. We see this idea of Chemosh uh, working its way into Israelite culture. Uh, Chemosh went by another name uh, that was used by the Amorites, which was Atar. Atar is, is related to the Arabic god uh, that is uh, in connection with Venus, uh, has connections to the Babylonian god Ishtar. Um, and we can actually see that by the time of the kings, uh, there's Asherah. Uh, Asherah is directly connected to Chemosh. Chemosh is even said in Moabite literature to be the consort uh, of Ishtar or, or Asherah. And so this idolatry is leaking its way into the Israelite culture because of the Moabites. Uh, fast forward from the Exodus, uh, fast forward from the time of Balaam and Balak uh, to the time of the judges, uh, right around where we are in the book of Ruth. But before the events of Ruth take place, uh, Israel actually, in one of its dips when they were away from Yahweh, uh, they fall under the subjugation of Moab. Uh, this this rebel nation, uh, this this um, opposition to the true God, Moab comes into control, and they have a king by the name of Eglon. Um, anyone play Sonic the Hedgehog uh, out there? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, remember, like the bad guy, the egg guy. Yeah, uh, that's what I think when I hear Eglon. I'm aware. Um, but just know this: uh, Eglon was a very hefty individual. Uh, the biblical writers, uh, they don't pull any punches uh, with calling him out on his obesity. Um, and he rules uh, wickedly. Uh, the Moabites are subjugating uh, Israel, and it's not good. And as God does during the time of the judges, he will raise up mighty men, mighty warriors, mighty women who will make a stand for Yahweh and direct and point Israel back to Yahweh just so happens, uh, this is one of my favorite biblical characters, God raises up a lefty. Any lefties in the house? All right. Yeah, there's very few of us, uh, but God will still use us. Uh, hey, there you go. Yeah. Uh, you have three. Yeah, me, my dad, my brother, we're all lefties. I'm the only true lefty because my dad and brother still throw a football and shoot a basketball with their right hand. But us true lefties who are only left-handed, um, God uses. No, his name is Ehud. There's a guy in the Bible named Ehud, and it's clear that he's a lefty, and this is what is so cool about this. Ehud is a southpaw, so he wears his sword on the opposite side. Uh, and as a result, he's able to conceal it because everyone else is drawing with their right hand from the left. He's drawing with his left hand from the right. Ehud somehow works it out that he's able to be in the chamber of Eglon the king, uh, and when the guards in the palace... Uh, attendants are not there. Uh, he whips out his concealed sword with his left hand and he drives it into the gut of Eglon. Um, Bible gets a little bit graphic in here because he's so large that like the sword and part of his arm get enveloped. And yeah, it's, it's, you can go read it for yourself in Judges because we're recording this. There might be kids listening to this. It's not a beautiful picture. Um, it is a beautiful picture because God uses Ehud this Israelite judge to set the people free from Moab. Then we get to the time of Ruth, where Moab, 
Moab is actually in kind of a, a truce with Israel, and there's uh, some good happening in Moab. There's not famine, so some Israelites are going to Moab. Um, fast forward to the time of David. Uh, David, the king of Israel, uh, is actually friendly with Moab, uh, partially because we're going to see uh, Ruth, who's a Moabite, is actually in David's family tree. Uh, so he's like, I'm going to respect you. Uh, but a few generations later, you've got Solomon. Uh, Solomon was kind of friendly with them as well. So friendly that he said, hey, Chamash, very cool. There's lots of gods. Do you want to open up some temples in the Jerusalem area? This is a bad thing. When, uh, when kings of Israel start flirting with the gods of other nations and saying, hey, come set up shop here. This is the downfall of Israel. So mini sermon there. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ... Uh, don't flirt with the gods of this world and invite them to have strongholds in your life because uh, that's going to be your downfall. We can go home after hearing that, amen? All right, that's just the side point. Um, Solomon says, Chamash, you can have a high place here on a hill in Jerusalem. And from that point on, kings of Israel begin to worship Chamash in secret. So much so that we have some later kings of Israel sacrificing their sons to Chamash to win battles. It's not going well for Israel. So much so that uh, Moab sees a superpower on the rise. To the east of Moab is this little empire called Babylon that is slowly taking over things. I say little uh, kind of jokingly as Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar is growing and growing and growing. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Nabopolassar, uh, you can all write that one down, that's a fun one. Uh, he expanded this tiny little city-state of Babylon to taking over all of Mesopotamia, working their way into the Levant, which is where Israel, which is where Jordan, which is where Moab is. And Moab said, hey, I'm going to get on board with them. And so Moab joins a coalition with Babylon, and Moab is one of the nations that help overthrow Israel and Judah uh, and lead them into captivity in both Assyria and Babylon. Um, so Moab, not a very good place. And that is where our story begins. In a bad place that seems to be fertile, that is giving life to the main characters of our story. In God's provision, uh, things in Bethlehem got better, and barley began to grow. And so Naomi, as we pick up with our story, Naomi turns to Ruth and Orpah, the widows, her daughters-in-law, and says, uh, "Go home. I've got nothing for you. There's no hope of an inheritance." I'm too old to get married, and even if I got married, I'm too old to have children, so there was no one to carry on my family name. There's nothing for you. At least you will have a name in the house of your mothers. Go home. And Orpah and Ruth, they weep bitterly with Naomi, for they love Naomi. And Orpah, Orpah she says, all right, I'm going to concede. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go back to the house of my mother and of my father. And we see here that she goes back and it says she goes back to her family's home and back to her gods. But Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth won't let this happen. Ruth clings to Naomi and says, no, I'm gonna go with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's interesting that she does not say, and your God is Yahweh, and my God is Chamash. But she leaves the God of her past to cling to the God of her hope and of her future. And she goes with Naomi 
back to the land of Bethlehem. Which, side note, is a little important town sometime in the future. Um, You may have heard of it. Yeah. So three practical applications today. We've read the texts. We've looked at some context for the texts. We've summarized the story. Here's some practical application. Um, Because there are some things that I feel like we can glean from even this narrative portion of Scripture. When hard times hit, we can respond one of many ways, but an example is given to us one of three ways we can respond. The first way we can respond when tragedy, when hard times, when trials hit, is we can leave. We can leave. Orpah, when, when, when hard times came, when, when everything was just at its uttermost worst, she left. You might be saying to yourself, well, Pastor Matt, I mean, we read it. She's encouraged or coerced to leave. Yes. I think it needs to be very clear that there are no villains in this book. Okay? Orpah's not a villain. She's not a villain for leaving. She's not a bad guy for leaving. Naomi is not a villain for uh, her, her understanding that God is smiting her. She's not a villain for that. Ruth is not a villain. This is a story that has no antagonists. But there are examples that we can learn from. And I would posit that this morning, leaving was not the right response. When situation, when circumstance was driving her away, she gave in and she left. When hard times hit, you can just leave. I mean, that is your choice. We are free will beings. You can leave. You can flee. You can run from trouble. You can run from tragedy. You can run from hard situations. And it may get well for you. That's, that's kind of nebulous. It's up in the air. We do know for Orpah, it says that she returned to her gods. So leaving might not have been the best case scenario for her. I'm going to argue that it was very much not the right decision, but this is the first one we are presented with. When hard times hit, you can leave. Verses 14 through 15, we see Orpah as, as her story unfolds, and we hear about her the last The second thing I think we can look at when hard times hit, rather than leaving, some of us grieve. You can leave or you can grieve. Verse 20 and 21, we see Naomi. And again, remember, there's no villains, but Naomi gets in her mindset, no, man, don't even call me Naomi. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. I'm cursed. Yahweh has his hand against me. He's inflicting me with punishment. All these kind of things. I don't know where she is, is getting that God is punishing her. Maybe she feels uh, some sort of remorse for leaving Israel and going to Moab. Maybe she feels that that's why her husband and her sons died. The biblical text doesn't tell us that. That's conjecture, but where she is at is where many of us have been before, right? When hard times hit, we think God is trying to get back at me for something. Or we think, what did I do wrong that God is punishing me for this? And Naomi begins to grieve. She gets inward in her thoughts and starts belittling herself and belittling even her view of what Yahweh views her as. When hard times hit, sometimes we grieve. 
Now, the book of 1 Thessalonians, we were, we were there just a couple months ago. Uh, Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us that, yes, we grieve. But we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Naomi was grieving the loss of her family. But if we understand Yahweh's relationship with Israel, those who were loyal to, 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 to Yahweh, Yahweh was loyal to them. And so she had hope. As a, as a daughter of Israel, she had hope that her lineage, that her family, if they were following Yahweh, there was a righteousness that God had a plan for them, yet she was mourning. And she was grieving. And she was saying that God was out to get her. How many of us have been there? When hard times hit, our first response is not, wow, this situation sucks. I live in a fallen world. But our reaction is, God, what did I do? Why me? It's a very real place. And it, I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell us that grieving is a sin. Okay? Don't hear that. Grieving is not bad. It's when we grieve for too long. And that we don't allow the Holy Spirit to lift us up and to pull us out. Grieving has its place, but remember, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. That's going to bring us to the third practical application of this text. When hard times hit, you can leave, you can grieve, or you can cleave. See what I did there? Side note, I sent this as a, as a text to Pastor Dave and Pastor Kyle. Earlier this week, hey, guys, these are my sermon points. And Pastor Dave, our, our wonderful lead pastor, responded to me with, yes, and the third point is, you can catch a plane to Tel Aviv. So, okay, where's he going next? And he goes, uh, I mean, he, he listed, like, I think he went to the, to the rhyme generator online. And he, he, he sent a paragraph where every sentence ended in some sort of eve. Uh, and I was like, all right, um, no, I'm just going to go with these points. Uh, I saw his sermon notes. He's using all 17 rhymes. Um, so if you're at the glass, no, I'm joking. Um, you can leave, you can grieve, or you can cleave. When hard times hit, Ruth, I believe, sets the best example for us. Rather than running from the situation... And rather than becoming introspective and wallowing in the situation, Ruth clings to hope. Ruth says to Naomi, yes, I know the situation is terrible. I know I no longer have a husband. I know you no longer have a husband. I know we no longer have an inheritance, but there must be something more because, Naomi, your God is real and mine is not. There's no hope for me in Moab. Our culture, our society, our religion is bankrupt, but there is a God that favors your people. And I want that. And so she clings to Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. She gives the sevenfold list of commitments to Naomi. This is a pattern that is repeated throughout 
the Old Testament prophetically pointing to Messiah. But I think the beauty about Ruth is when hard times hit, she knew who to lean on. And I think for you and I, there's an encouragement. When hard times hit, we can know who to lean on. Remember that verse in 1 Thessalonians that we looked at? For we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We have hope. And his name is Jesus. Hope is the absolute expectancy of good to come. It's not, it's not some frivolous idea. It's not some like, mythical thing off in the distance that maybe someday. No, it is absolute and it is here and it is now. And his name is Jesus. Ruth didn't know it at the time. She didn't say, oh, there's going to be some dude born in a little town that Naomi's from who's going to be a baby born in a manger who's going to save humanity. She didn't know that. But she knew there was something about the God that Naomi served that she wanted to cling to. Now, the beauty of the story is Ruth is in the ancestry of Jesus. This whole story points and paints the picture Redemption, but redemption starts when we lean on the Redeemer. Say that again. Redemption starts when we begin to lean on the Redeemer. The beauty is he's already done the redeeming. We just got to acknowledge it. But we can feel it in our own lives when we lean, when we cleave to when we cleave to God. I'm going to invite Mariah back up at this time as she's going to lead us in worship to close the service, but. Our pastors here at Hillside, we, we, it's, it's been a fun practice over the last couple months. Three different campuses, three different pastors preaching. Uh, we write out our notes, we share our notes with one another, and we kind of amalgamate different things. Uh, and Pastor Kyle, the Southeast Campus, uh, is having inclement weather today as he lives all the way out in St. Helens. Um, it took him five hours to get home on Wednesday because of snow. Uh, so Pastor Kyle is going to be live streaming uh, the Southeast Campus's message later on today. Uh, but he, he sent his notes this morning, and as I was praying and finalizing my thoughts for this morning's service, uh, I, I read the closing remarks that Kyle had in his sermon, um, and they were beautiful. Uh, and so I, I said, you know what, Kyle? I'm going to borrow those uh, because I think they're really good. Um, Kyle gave the example, um, the Amazon River. Anyone familiar? Yeah, right. Big River, South America, Amazon Basin, huge, all of Brazil, many other uh, nations in South America are, are a part of it. But the Amazon River has so much discharge of water uh, that in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, you can track the current of the Amazon River upwards of 200 miles off the coastline. That's how much water is being dumped into the Atlantic. And there's stories of in the 17th and the 18th century of sailors in that region. Because not only is the Amazon dumping out into the Atlantic there, there's also some pretty still waters where storm cells and wind systems, they don't pick up in that area very much. And there's recorded account of, of many ships getting stuck in the Atlantic right there. And any good sailor knows that when you get thirsty, you don't just throw the bucket over and drink the salt water because it's not going to end well. And so there were entire crews of ships who would die of dehydration because they had no fresh water to drink. 
But there's also recorded history of ships and crews that were familiar with the area that would come alongside these ships that were stuck, that weren't being manned anymore because people were passing out of dehydration. And they'd yell across the bow and they'd say, what's wrong? And with chapped lips and parched mouth, they'd respond, we have no water. And the crew would say, lower your buckets. Do you not know you are sitting in fresh water? As the Amazon discharging into the Atlantic there had pushed the saline level of the water down so much that it was potable water. And the example is, many of us at times in our life, and maybe even now, we seem like we are stuck, distressed in the oceans of this world with no fresh water to drink, but we don't realize we are sitting on gallons upon gallons upon gallons of life-giving water. We have hope. We have redemption. It is right there at a hand's grasp. But sometimes we leave. Sometimes we grieve when the word of God is encouraging you and I to cleave, cling to the hope that we have, cling to the cross, cling to Jesus because he gives hope, he gives life, and he gives a future, and he does it freely. It's on us to respond and to receive. Now, does that mean that hey, cling and everything's going to be beautiful, roses and everything. No, no. We live in a fallen and a broken world. And our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. Eternity with God himself. But the beauty is, Jesus says, yes, I've come to prepare the kingdom. But the kingdom is here and now as well. And we get to live it. And even in our hard trials and tribulations, we can have hope. As the author of James, James, the brother of Jesus says, blessed are you when you face various trials and tribulations. Paul writing to the church in Rome, God causes, causes all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. If you've put your faith in Jesus this morning, that means God called you. He did a work in you and he's drawing you unto himself. So would you all stand with me this morning? And I'm going to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're in the process of leading. You're running from hardship. I'm not going to tell you that's going to end in destruction. But I will tell you, there's a better response. Maybe you're here and you're grieving. And that grieving is, is felt. It's real. And there is a, a necessity for grieving. But don't stay there. That's never where we are meant to reside. We are to cling to our Savior. So I'm going to invite us to pray this morning. But before I do, if you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never clinged to what he has done for you, I'm going to give you the opportunity when we pray. If you want to give your heart to the Lord, if you want to recommit your heart to the Lord, uh, when we pray, just slip your hand in the air. Uh, we're, we're going to close our eyes. Um, if that's something you're like, ah, I don't know. Hey, let me just tell you, it, it's a beautiful thing. We've all had moments where we made decisions for Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, you made the decision. That is a public thing. That's something to celebrate. So we don't need to conceal it. 
But if you've never put your faith in Jesus this morning, today is the day. No matter what you're going through, I promise you this. God's word promises you this. He loves you. He cares for you. He meets you where you're at. And if you cling to him, you will experience his presence. And if you're here this morning, you've made those decisions, but you're going through a hard time right now. I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to pray and believe that that prayer is for you. And we're going to agree together because God's word tells us where two or three are gathered in his name concerning a matter, he is here, he is in our midst. And so would you all join me in prayer this morning as we close our eyes and we lift our hearts to heaven. God, we come before you now. God, we thank you that you are our hope. God, that you are, are the one who, who restores what the enemy has destroyed. Hopes, futures, dreams that have been crashed. God, you can restore even tenfold. We look at the life of Job. Destruction, restoration. We look at Naomi and Ruth. Hopelessness. But I set on the Redeemer. God, this morning I pray for that one, maybe two, maybe three hearts that are in the thick of it right now. Hardship is hit. God, we pray for those who are considering leaving. God, that you would draw them in. Lord, that they would feel your presence and that they would lean on you. God, for those who are grieving, there is grief. There is mourning, but we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Jesus said, it is better that I go so that I could send the paraclete, the comforter, the helper. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to comfort in those areas where there is hardship, where there is sorrow. That your Holy Spirit would build us up, make us new, give us a fresh filling. God, for all of us, that we would find ourselves like Ruth that we would cling to the hope that we have in you, that we would cling to the promises that we have in you, that we would cleave to you and say, God, where you are, I want to be. Where you go, I want to follow. God, what you say, I believe. God, that we would see your plan, your purposes prevail in our lives. So Father, we turn to you. We fall to our knees. We wrap our arms around you like Ruth did there with Naomi on a road leading Moab on way to Bethlehem. And we know I'm not leaving. I'm staying with you because you've always been faithful. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you this morning. Be with us as we go from this place. God, may you receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise forever and ever. Amen.